Today, I'll be reading the accompanying commentary to the Supreme Court's newly issued Code of Conduct. Enjoy. This Code of Conduct is substantially derived from the Code of Conduct for U.S. Judges, but adapted to the unique institutional setting of the Supreme Court. In certain instances, the foregoing canons provide fairly specific guidance. A justice, for example, should not testify voluntarily as a character witness. Canon 2B. A justice may serve as the executor only for the estate, trust, or person of a member of the justice's family. Canon 4E. In many cases, however, these canons are broadly worded general principles informing conduct, rather than specific rules requiring no exercise of judgment or discretion. It is not always clear, for example, whether particular conduct undermines, promotes, or has no effect on public confidence in the integrity and impartiality of the judiciary, Canon 2A, or whether a justice has acted in a patient, dignified, respectful, and courteous manner, Canon 3A. This concern is heightened with respect to canons applicable to justices of the Supreme Court, given the often sharp disagreement concerning matters of great import that come before the Supreme Court. These canons must be understood in that light. This commentary does not adopt the extensive commentary from the lower court code, much of which is inapplicable. It instead is tailored to the Supreme Court's placement at the head of a branch of our tripartite governmental structure. Canon 3b addresses the inherently judicial function of recusal. The justices follow the same general principles and statutory standards for recusal as other federal judges, including in the evaluation of motions to recuse made by parties but the application of those principles can differ due to the effect on the court's processes and the administration of justice in the event that one or more members must withdraw from a case. Lower courts can freely substitute one district or circuit judge for another. The Supreme Court consists of nine members who sit together. The loss of even one justice may undermine the fruitful interchange of minds which is indispensable to the court's decision-making process. Recusal can have a distorting effect upon the certiorari process, requiring the petitioner to obtain, under our current practice, four votes out of eight instead of four out of nine. When hearing a case on the merits, the loss of one justice is effectively the same as casting a vote against the petitioner. The petitioner needs five votes to overturn the judgment below, and it makes no difference whether the needed fifth vote is missing because it has been cast for the other side or because it has not been cast at all. And the absence of one justice risks the affirmance of a lower court decision by an evenly divided court, potentially preventing the court from providing a uniform national rule of decision on an important issue. In short, much can be lost when even one justice does not participate in a particular case. This canon's recusal provisions thus differ from those in the lower court code 
in that they restate the Justice's 1993 Statement of Recusal Policy, recognize the duty to sit, and that the time-honored rule of necessity may override the rule of disqualification, and omit the remittal procedure of lower court code Canon 3D. Canon 3B-2D retains language from the lower court code relating to known interests of third-degree relatives that might be substantially affected by the outcome of a proceeding. Because of the broad scope of the cases that come before the Supreme Court and the nationwide impact of its decisions, this provision should be construed narrowly. For example, a justice who has school-age nieces and nephews need not recuse from a case involving student loans, even though the disposition of that case could substantially affect the terms on which the justice's relatives would finance their higher education. The canon's recusal provisions depend on the justice's knowledge of certain relationships or interests. The court receives approximately 5,000 to 6,000 petitions for writs of certiorari each year. Roughly 97% of this number may be and are denied at a preliminary stage without joint discussion among the justices as lacking any reasonable prospect of certiorari review. Recusal issues must be considered in light of this reality. In view of the canon's knowledge requirement and the large volume of cases docketed, the justices rely on the disclosure statements required under the court's rules in identifying interested parties that may present grounds for recusal. Individual justices, rather than the court, decide recusal issues. Recusals are noted in the court's decisions both at the certiorari and merit stages. In contrast to the lower courts, where filing of amicus briefs is limited, the Supreme Court receives up to a thousand amicus filings each term. In some recent instances, more than 100 amicus briefs have been filed in a single case. The court has adopted a permissive approach to amicus filings, having recently modified its rules to dispense with the prior requirement that amici either obtain the consent of all parties or file a motion seeking leave to submit an amicus brief. In light of the court's permissive amicus practice, amici and their counsel will not be a basis for an individual justice to recuse. The courts of appeals follow a similar approach to ameliorating any risk that an amicus filing could precipitate a recusal. Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 29A2 states that a court of appeals may prohibit the filing of or may strike down an amicus brief that would result in a judge's disqualification. Canon 4 reflects the principle that justices, like all judges, are encouraged to engage in extrajudicial activities as long as independence and impartiality are not compromised. Justices are uniquely qualified to engage in judicial activities that concern the law, the legal system, and the administration of justice, such as by speaking, writing, teaching, or participating in scholarly research projects. Justices are also encouraged to engage in educational, religious, charitable, fraternal, 
or civic extracurricular activities not conducted for profit, even when those activities do not relate to the law. Participation in both law-related and other judicial activities helps integrate the justices into their communities and furthers public understanding of, and respect for, the judicial system. Canon 4G clarifies that a justice should not to any substantial degree use judicial chambers, resources, or staff to engage in activities that do not materially support official functions or other activities permitted under these canons. This provision recognizes the distinctive security concerns that the justices face as high-profile public figures and allows the justices to accept comprehensive security protection. It also allows court officials and chamber staff to perform their official duties in enhancing security and providing legal, ethics, and other appropriate assistance to the justices in light of the high public interest in the justices' activities and the acute security concerns that are distinct from such concerns for lower court judges. And consistent with historic practice, chambers personnel, including law clerks, may assist justices with speeches, law review articles, and other activities described in Canon 4. Canon 43 and 4H articulate the practice formalized in 1991 of individual justices following the financial disclosure requirements and limitations on gifts, outside earned income, outside employment, and honoraria. Justices file the same annual financial disclosure reports as other federal judges. Those reports disclose, among other things, the justices' non-governmental income, investments, gifts, and reimbursements from third parties. For purposes of sound judicial administration, the justices file those reports through the Judicial Conference Committee on Financial Disclosure. In regard to the financial disclosure requirements relating to teaching and outside earned income, a justice may not accept compensation for an appearance or a speech, but may be paid for teaching a course of study at an accredited educational institution or participating in an educational program of any duration that is sponsored by such an institution and is part of its educational offering. Associate justices must receive prior approval from the Chief Justice to receive compensation for teaching. The Chief Justice must receive prior approval from the court. Justices may not have outside earned income, including income from teaching, in excess of an annual cap established by statute and regulation. Compensation for writing a book is not subject to the cap. Like lower court judges, justices engage in extrajudicial activities other than teaching, including speaking, writing, and lecturing on both law-related and non-legal subjects. In fact, the lower court canons encourage public engagement by judicial officers to avoid isolation from the society in which they live and to contribute to the public's understanding of the law. In deciding whether to speak before any group, a justice should consider whether doing so would create an appearance of impropriety in the minds of reasonable members of the public. In addition to this code of conduct, the justices also comply with 
the Constitution of the United States, current laws relating to judicial ethics including but not limited to 28 U.S.C. Sections 455, 2109, the Ethics in Government Act, 5 U.S.C. Sections 13101 through 13111 and 13141 through 13145, the Foreign Gifts and Decorations Act, 5 U.S.C. Section 7342, and the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act of 2012, and current judicial conference regulations on gifts, foreign gifts and decorations, outside earned income, honoraria and employment, and financial disclosure. The justices may also take guidance from their colleagues, judicial decisions, the Supreme Court's Office of Legal Counsel, the Judicial Conference Committees on Codes of Conduct and Financial Disclosure, lower court judges, executive and legislative branch practice and guidance, state judicial ethics authorities, and from scholars, scholarly treatises, and articles. The justices also continue to look to the court's own past resolutions and opinions for guidance. The court provides mandatory training on judicial ethics principles to all court employees. In urging the judiciary to promulgate and adopt what became the lower court code, Justice Tom C. Clark observed shortly after his retirement from the Supreme Court that judges must bear the primary responsibility for requiring appropriate judicial behavior. The same is true for justices. To assist the justices in complying with these canons, the Chief Justice has directed court officers to undertake an examination of best practices, drawing in part on the experience of other federal and state courts. For example, some district courts and courts of appeals have deployed software to run automated recusal checks on new case filings. The court will assess whether it needs additional resources in its clerk's office or office of legal counsel to perform initial and ongoing review of recusal and other ethics issues. The court will also consider whether amendments to its rules on the disclosure obligations of parties and counsel may be advisable. In regard to financial disclosure, the justices will continue to seek guidance from the Office of Legal Counsel and the staff of the relevant judicial conference committees, including the Committee on Financial Disclosure, which reviews each justice's annual filing for compliance with applicable laws and regulations. The Office of Legal Counsel will maintain specific guidance tailored to recurring ethics and financial disclosure issues and will continue to provide annual training on those issues to justices, chambers staff, and other court personnel. We've come to the end of the court's commentary. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.